You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. All right, so we have been preaching through Revelation. It's going a lot quicker than our series on Matthew, which took like a year and a half. <laughs> That's because, first off, Matthew's long. And when you're preaching through a gospel, you're stopping like every fourth to eighth part of a chapter to cover one theme that happened. Revelation, what it likes to do is paint big pictures. And that's why we're moving through it quicker than we did with, with these other ones. Because we started this really at the end of last year. We're already halfway through it. Uh, but that's just important to remember because a lot of times we like to pick just certain verses out of the Bible. And because we have no idea what the context is for that verse, we walk away from that passage with a completely different understanding of what the scripture said. Whereas in Revelation, you really got to paint big strokes to comprehend what's going on. Plus, Revelation's just confusing. It's like John pauses in the middle of a story to tell another story to tell another story with a micro story attached to the first story that happened after the second story with no chronological order as to if we're retelling the last story in a different symbolical way this time. Anyways, Revelation is complicated to follow. So we paint these bigger strokes so that we can kind of keep up with it. Today, we're going to find ourselves in Revelation 11, which is about two witnesses which is a very um, talked about passage as to what's going on here and who these two witnesses are. Let's go ahead and just hop right into Revelation 11. So this is John. He's having this vision. Uh, last week, he was just given a prophetic word. He, told, he was told it will be a delicious word, but it will make his stomach uh, not feel good, right? Delicious in his mouth, bitter in his stomach. And then he begins to speak. About these two witnesses. He says, Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff. So he's got like a you know, yardstick, but longer. And I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it was given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothes, and sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, these two witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Again, the reason we don't like reading Revelation, this is like weird stuff, right? Not only weird, but frightening stuff. These people bringing about famine and and able to blow fire at people and and, uh, turn water into blood. Like none of that is super comfortable. And it's a little more uncomfortable as the Christians who seem to be doing this. So... We need to dive in to kind of understand what's going on here. Who are these two witnesses? And like I said, there's been a lot of possibilities put out there. I'm just going to tell you a few of them. Number one, the one that was especially popular back in the day and still today, is Enoch and Elijah. Anybody know why these two witnesses might be popular? Yes. Yes? Yes. 
translated. Yes, say Enoch, it says he was with God and then he was no more, as though he just kind of took off. And then Elijah gets in a chariot and flies up to heaven. Uh, yes, at least in the book of Enoch he is. I can't remember if the genealogy does it right in the Bible itself. But yeah, so you see um, these, these two characters just kind of went to heaven, never died. So obviously when we're thinking of two witnesses, it's pretty easy to be like, those guys. Especially because one of these guys is doing the kind of things that Elijah did while he was alive. So it's like, well, if that's Elijah, your guy must be Enoch. That was a very popular thought, but then it evolved over time to Moses and Elijah. Why? Well, because one of these prophets seems to be doing things that Moses did, while one of the other prophets does things that Elijah did. Moses turns water into blood, and Elijah shuts the skies. And so it sounds like them, so people go there. Others go to Elijah and Jeremiah, because passages can possibly connect it. Others go to Peter and Paul. Some go to Stephen, who's the first martyr for the Christian faith in the Bible. And then James the Just, who is not in your Bible, but was a martyr in Josephus' historical writings. Some say it's James, the, uh, James and John, these two brothers who followed Jesus. Some say it's John the Baptist and Jesus. Others would go on and say it's James the Just and James, the brother of Jesus. Some would say it's Enos and Joshua from the Old Testament, these high priests. Others get real kind of more symbolic, like, no, it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Others are like, no, it's humanity and the Holy Spirit. Others are like, no, it's Israel, the spirit of Israel, but captured up in the faith of Christianity. <laughs> Others are like, no, it's the word of God, but also the testimony of Jesus. And then some would say it's the church. So like I said, not only is Revelation confusing, but there's a lot of possibilities that you can make out of symbolism, making it even more confusing. Where do we land on this? Honestly, I think there's a hybrid of thoughts going through his mind. Uh, I feel like if you look at literature of the time, I need to look a little closer at this, but it seems like there's folklore that uh, Enoch and Elijah would return. There was an idea that Elijah would return during Jesus' time, right? Because he tells him John the Baptist was Elijah, not reincarnated or whatever, but he's playing the symbolic role of Elijah. So they were already thinking Elijah would return. So John's maybe playing into thoughts like that. Um, but I think part of the reason that he's got these two witnesses, uh, when we're trying to identify who they are, I think he's saying it's the church. This is what some of my favorite theologians would propose, but I'm not just doing it because I like them. I'm doing it because as I try to find something that makes sense of this, this one really does the best. And the first fact is that it's lampstands. Right here in Revelation 11, John's like, these two guys are lampstands. What were lampstands at the beginning of Revelation? Churches. Churches. Look, John does not give us many details as to how to interpret things. But there was like one, maybe two times <laughs> where he told us what a symbol meant. And when it came to lampstands, he's like, that's the church. So that leads us to another question. Are these two specific churches or the whole church? Uh, some would be like, well, there were two churches in Revelation that didn't get any critique. So maybe it's those two churches. I'd say no. I'd say these two witnesses are supposed to be symbolic of the church worldwide, of God's church. I know that sounds weird because they're like, well, then why are there two of them? Why does the number matter? What was that? You think that? 
Well, you don't have to agree with me, Janice. You don't get brownie points or anything. (laughs) But lampstands are churches in Revelation. We've already been told this. So when we look at these two witnesses and John says those are lampstands, I wouldn't make it more confusing. I would just go with what John has already told us. Now, these two uh, lampstands are connected to olive trees. And this olive tree lampstand picture is coming from Zechariah 4. John loves Zechariah 4, when, well, Zechariah in general. When he's writing Revelation, he puts a lot of imagery from Zechariah into Revelation. And if you go to Zechariah, what you find is that the Holy Spirit is what is empowering um, Zerubbabel in that passage. So God says this. He says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What is he talking about? In that passage, he's talking about the olive trees, saying this oil is my spirit. It's fresh oil. All throughout the Bible, oil is a reference to God's Holy Spirit. Uh, When kings are anointed with oil, it's supposed to be this empowering act of God upon them. Him giving his Holy Spirit to empower them to do the ministry that they're called to do. Oil is for anointing. That's why sometimes when you go to our prayer team and get prayed for, sometimes they'll anoint you. Because the Bible tells us, anoint those who are sick and they will be healed. And so we do it as an act of the Holy Spirit. Not because we think oil has special properties in it that will heal you. But because we're saying in the Holy Spirit and his power, we're praying for your healing. So olive trees are the spirit connected to this, these two witnesses, the church. The church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense with this passage. Because what are these guys doing? These two witnesses are going out and doing all kinds of things that humans can't do. They're shutting the skies. They're calling down fire or breathing out fire. They're they're doing all these things. So when you look at these passages, we again see spirit-empowered churches. Furthermore, the church is wearing sackcloth, which can be seen as repentance. You wear sackcloth as a way to Tell God, you know, I repent, I turn to you. So you see them as repentant before God. But it's also a form of mourning. They're mourning for the world. God, the world won't turn to you. We saw that two weeks ago. As God pours out these plagues, when he's doing that, he's hoping they'll repent. He's not doing it just because he's like, I don't like this one, right? No, he's doing it so they'll repent. And these churches, the church is mourning because they won't. And then on top of that, why are there two witnesses? Big question. There's several reasons, but the most important one I would give you is because these Christians, these witnesses, are a part of God's judgment. That's why there's two. If you go to court today and somebody's just suing you and nobody else has any idea what the story is about, it's a pretty hard case to make because it's just one person's word versus another person's word. And the Bible didn't like that. If you go back to the law, it was pretty clear. It's like one person just saying something about another person is not good enough for a court case. That could just be slander. I've been in moments where I've been talking with people and suddenly they turn on me. And the way in which they turned on me, like the story that I know they're going to tell everyone else. I'm like, that's not what happened. (laughs) It's their word versus my word. And anyone who's their friend, of course, is going to side with them, regardless of what I have to say on my end. 
Even if I feel like I'm being slandered, I'm like, that's not what happened. I'm stuck in that moment. The Bible understands that that can happen to people. That's why Old Testament law would say time and time again, one witness is not enough for a court case. You need two, three, four. And I understand that like sometimes there is no one else to witness. That's why today we look for evidence and we have a lot of work to do to find good evidence. But the more people you have to take the testifying seat and say, this is what happened. Well, the more you're able to testify that this is the case. Three, four, five, six people are able to say that this one person did do this thing. Whereas just one person versus one person, it can be slanderous. So that's one reason that there's two is because these witnesses are witnesses in the way that the Bible's always thought of witnesses. They are witnessing that the world is not turning towards God. And not just one person is saying it's not happening, but they can both go back to God and be like, all these people have t- uh, are not coming to you. So um, it's also a play on Zechariah again. Zechariah had two witnesses, so John has two witnesses. And their powers match both Elijah and Moses. So you can see like two people kind of crammed into one image of the church. So quick question, how do they match Elijah and Moses? One of the hardest passages to read in today is I want to shed some light on it so that you see it, I think, in the light in which it's meant to be read. It says, if anyone would harm them, these two witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Again, not a fun, fun verse right there. But do you remember someone else in Revelation who had something in their mouth? Jesus, thank you. Yes, Jesus has a sword in his mouth. Now, when we read that, we're thinking symbolism, right? We don't think when we're going to get to heaven, Jesus is just going to have this heavy sword dragging his tongue down. How's he doing? Right? That's not what we think is ahead of us. We know like this is symbolism. Jesus' mouth is his weapon. With it, he can defend. With it, he can bring justice. His words are final. He only needs to speak. He doesn't need to slay. His words can do the slave. So with that, I think we just understand that this weapon right here, these Christians blowing fire out their mouths, this is again another way to look at the fact that Christians join Jesus in, in making decisions and ruling with authority. Paul says, don't you know you'll judge angels? One day you will take on a place in God's courtroom Where your opinion will matter. A fallen angel will be before you and you will have the ability and authority to judge that angel. Likewise, you would think, of course, the same thing with humans. If angels are higher than humans, then or, you know, I don't know how that fully works out. Uh, But still, you get this picture that like Christians have the ability to also judge with God. And so this fire coming from their mouth, if you fast forward to the end of Revelation, Ultimately, it's a lake of fire in which everything that is wrong is thrown into. And so I think the symbolism that you're seeing in this passage is being written to show, look, you Christians, you church, you are witnesses with your words, just as I have the power to speak into, um, you know, that I choose who gets in and who gets out. So your testimony about who's afflicted you and who hasn't 
will feed my judgments. This fire from your mouth, this lake of fire, this is within part of your uh, witnessing as to who is not coming to me. So when we look at it in that light, we're not actually seeing Christians running around burning people with supernatural fire, okay? We see Christians whose words carry power as well in Jesus' mind. He cares about what you think and about um, who's afflicting you. Even if it was real fire coming out of someone's mouth, God taught us not to use supernatural power that way. I'll try to be quick on this because I know I've talked about it before. But in the Old Testament, you have Elijah, who's been gifted with the ability to call down fire from heaven and burn people up, right? An army comes up to him. They're like, hey, the king wants to talk with you. Will you come with us? He's like, no, fire from heaven. And they all burn up, all 50 of them. So the king's like, well, I'll send another army. And these 50 guys are like, okay. So they go like, hey, the king really wants to talk to you. Will he come with us? And he's like, no, fire from heaven. Like he's just afraid. He doesn't want to go see the king. He just told the king he's going to die. Now a third group of 50 comes up and like, please consider us as precious in your eyes. Don't kill us. That's basically what they're saying. And you imagine that Elijah's just going to do it again. No, fire from heaven. But the angel of the Lord, which as I've shared many times before, and there's a whole podcast, like 10 podcast episodes about it on our podcast. The angel of the Lord, in my opinion, is like Jesus basically in the Old Testament. He shows up and he tells Elijah, stop it. <laughs> Maybe those aren't the words he uses, but instead he's just like, just go with them. Elijah goes with them, gets to the king, has a conversation with the king and goes home. The angel of the Lord, not just any angel, very specifically the angel of Yahweh, a very, very Jesus-like angel because when he shows up, they talk about him as though he is God. Anyways, when the angel of the Lord shows up, he's like, stop doing that. Like you get this picture of Elijah has been anointed with authority over supernatural power to call down heaven, fire from heaven. And God's like, you're using your power wrong. <laughs> and when you fast forward to the New Testament, you see it with James and John. They can't find a place to stay in a hotel. And so they're like, should we call down fire from heaven? And Jesus, again, <laughs> it's like, No! <laughs> And some manuscripts have Jesus saying, uh, uh, you don't know what spirit you're of. In other words, when you try to use power in that way, you're working for Satan. You're working for the enemy. Other manuscripts say they want to call down fire from heaven to be like Elijah. So you see Jesus rebuking what Elijah did in his apostles. And that's the word he uses. Jesus rebuked his disciples. That's a strong word. Rebuke in the Bible is used against demons. And it's used against uh, bad thinking, thinking like Satan. And so he rebukes him. No. He doesn't tell him, no, we can't use power like that, guys. He's like, no, that's not how we use power. And we see other stories like that where Elisha, Elijah's protege, Elisha is gifted with supernatural power. You know what the first thing he does with it is? The Bible says some kids called him bald, so he... <laughs> He told some she-bears to eat them. <laughs> and she-bears came out of the woods and ate them. <laughs> I would suggest to you, God was not in heaven like, ah, yes, my work is done. I would suggest to you that Elisha, who has just been gifted with a double portion of Elijah's ability, is misusing it already and now has to learn how to use it correctly. 
That sounds weird to us because it's supernatural power, but the same is true in, in natural ways, right? God gifts Saul with rain. He is anointed to become king. And then Saul does such a bad job of being king. He misuses his authority and power to the point that God says, I regret having made him king. If you think of the same thing with other supernatural powers and authorities, the Bible paints pictures of the prince of Greece as spiritual being and the prince of Persia a spiritual being and these beings apparently have power to work against God where they get power they didn't earn it themselves God must have granted them power and authority which Deuteronomy 32 talks about and now they're misusing it against God so you see that God doesn't just like take away power when we misuse it sometimes sometimes he's like trying to teach us how to use it the right way I was at a church once when I understood the passion behind this request, but they were praying that like strip clubs would be broken down and uh, that they would just, you know, I understood the heart. The heart was like, we, we don't want women being treated this way. We don't want sexual immorality going on. We don't want dirty money going around and, and just, you know, Satan having his way in this way. I understand all that. But when you pray for it to be burned to the ground, I, I stop and I'm like, first off, know your words have power. Exactly. And secondly, know that when a building burns down to the ground, you get insurance. <laughs> you just build it again. Uh, but thirdly, that second actually wasn't a point. Let's go back to second. Second, <laughs> second there might be more redemptive ways to go about this. To pull people out and pray in ways in which you might be able to go about that rather than just calling down fire from heaven on every sin that you come across. But again, I under, understood the heart. But spiritual power, though it can be used, I would say, in incorrect ways, there are actual ways to afflict someone in a good way. And you see this in the Bible. <laughs> afflict someone in a good way. Look at, look at Jesus, right? Jesus shows up to Paul and he afflicts him. He makes Paul blind. Paul can't see anymore. We'd be thinking, no, no, no. Jesus wouldn't afflict anyone supernaturally. He does. And you know what that affliction does? It turns Paul's whole life around. He becomes the most zealous character in the entire Bible. He goes from persecuting God's people to being one of the people in Revelation where God's like, they deserve judgment, to being the one who goes to the ends of the earth, which he did in his time, or he tried, because in his time they thought Rome was the end of the earth. And so that's why you see throughout his passages, i got to get to Rome, i got to get to Rome. Why? Because he knows, the prophecies say, spread it throughout the whole earth. He's going through the whole earth. One point he's persecuting Christians, the next point he's converting the whole world and writing most of the New Testament. How did that come about? Because Jesus used spiritual affliction in a healthy way. And then Paul took a note from Jesus. Paul at one point was ran into a false prophet named Bar-Jesus in Acts 12, I think. And Bar-Jesus, anybody remember what he does to Bar-Jesus? Paul blinds him. Bar-Jesus is this false prophet and Paul blinds him temporarily for a time. We don't know if that managed to convert Bar-Jesus. We don't know the rest of his story. Maybe there's a possibility. But we at least know that the government official that was walking around with Paul, when he saw it, he gave glory to God. 
So there's a spiritual affliction used in a proper way, not just blowing people up, <laughs> but in the same way that prison is meant to afflict you to make you not do bad things again. So Jesus might use affliction to make you not do bad things again, even if that affliction doesn't work or prison doesn't work. Though in these cases, it does. Nebuchadnezzar, very prideful political leader. Dude gets up on the top of his building. He's like, look at this kingdom I've made. God turns him into a werox. I don't even know if that's a thing. I don't even know if that's what the Bible's saying. I think he had a psychological episode, though, because suddenly he's out eating grass, walking around on his knees and hands like a cow. That was spiritual affliction. But you know what? When that, that moment was over, dude wasn't so prideful anymore. Hey, guys. I'm pulling the grass out of his mouth. I'm back. Anybody got my pants? You know, like that's, that's the story you're left with. These two witnesses in Revelation are given powers like Elijah and Moses. They can stop rain like Elijah. They can call down fire from heaven. They can turn waters to blood like Moses. They can strike the earth with plagues like Moses. But all of these things are meant to bring people to repentance. The world doesn't still want to repent. In fact, they say that these two witnesses, they're a torment. Not because they're torturing them, but because the things that they do aren't softening their hearts. It's just tormenting them. These dang Christians, if we could just get rid of them. But we learned two weeks ago that all the plagues that God used didn't cause people to repent. This week, we see that all the plagues that God lets his Christians use doesn't turn people to repent. And here's the pivot point and the two witnesses and the most crucial part a key, I would even say, to understanding Revelation well. Is they finally do something that causes the world to repent after chapters of them only hardening their hearts. If you remember last week's message, John was given a word that was delicious in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. So far, it's only seemed delicious because he's speaking that word right now. This follows that passage. So far, it's only been delicious. Christians, I've empowered you. Christians, you're safe. Christians, the plagues won't afflict you. Christians, if anything, you're the ones doing the afflictions. Christians, you're my witnesses. Christians, I trust you. Christians, your words carry power with me and my judgments on the rest of the world. You are my people, my witnesses. That, that's all pretty delicious. So what's so bitter? Passage isn't over. Revelation 11, 7 through 14. Uh, it's always paragon. Always. No, just kidding. And when they had finished their testimony, so these two witnesses have finished testifying, the beast, which in the Bible is seen both as Satan and Rome, so government and uh, um, Satan pulling strings behind it, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. 
And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. They make a holiday out of the death of these Christians. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is to come. What's delicious now? after passages upon passages of trying to get the world to repent, they finally have. What's bitter about it? The only thing that made it happen is us being willing to put our whole lives on the line and die on behalf of Jesus. John has finally led us back to Jesus. Living like Moses with his plagues didn't do the trick of getting Egypt to repent. Living like Elijah with his power didn't do the trick. But living like Jesus finally brought these people to repentance. Satan and Rome attack Jesus and Jesus suffers through it all the way to death on a cross. The people of the world insult Jesus, and Jesus suffers through it. But on the other side of Jesus' suffering, there's resurrection. On the other side of Jesus' suffering is the true, full gospel, that this isn't all there is. There's good news even after death. On the other side of suffering is the repentance of the world. And perhaps that's the bitter prophetic word that Christians, if you want to do what God's been trying to get you to do and reach the rest of the world, you are going to have to suffer like Jesus did. Suffer all the way to death. But don't think that your death means nothing. Because there's much good on the other side. You know, when Abraham tried to get a few people saved in Sodom and Gomorrah, he's aiming for 10. God, if you find 10 people, can we just save those 10 people? Few people got saved, the rest of the city was burned down. But this great revival right here with the death of Christians, this great revival, only 10% of a city is burned down, is knocked down. 90% was saved. And this earthquake that killed 7,000 people in Jeremiah's time, Jeremiah tried to find people who hadn't worshipped Baal. He could find only 7,000, only. But in Revelation, with this massive revival of Christians being able to lay it all on the line for Jesus, only 7,000 died in an earthquake. The vast majority lived because the Christians finally brought them to repentance. And we see that not only throughout history, but but right now, all around the world, people are getting saved. There are some 
crazy revivals going on in other countries like we have never seen before. And it's people who are willing to lie their lives down because the blood of a Christian is a powerful seed that cannot be stopped. It only makes more Christians. (laughs) You kill them. It's like, I don't know, cutting an earthworm in half like turns into two. Wait, (laughs) not the analogy I was going for. You kill a Christian and it's like a worm. That's a powerful image. You take that home and chew on that. But this is the, the message to the early church. John started off his letter saying, Christians, you're about to be persecuted. You're about to be hurt. You already had one among you who's died. And some of you are about to go to jail. And it's not going to be good. As John continues to write this vision, he goes from letter to churches to vision. He continues to say, but... Look what happens when Christians lay it all on the line for Jesus. When we're not so caught up in our comforts and it's about us, us, us. Look at what happens. The blood of the martyrs begins to redeem the world. So as we get ready to worship, uh, band can come to stage and we're going to kind of take us through this passage. We're going to sing three songs. One, I I Surrender All, which is us saying, God, we want to be willing to put it all on the line. Whatever percentage we're at right now, we want a higher percentage. And then two, um, we're going to sing... another song after that. Uh, We're going to sing... Death, where is your sting? Which is this reminder to us, even though we do put it all on the line, death is not the end. God still resurrects us and we go on to be with him. And thirdly, we're going to sing a new song called Waymaker, which maybe you've already heard somewhere else. Uh, But Waymaker is this God making a way when there seems to be no way. For weeks now, there seemed to be no way to reach the world. And now that way has finally come. So as we sing through Revelation 11, uh, I'm going to have Joel come and kind of open up our prayer team time. They'll be in the back corner, but he's got at least a word for you. And then we will move into some worship.